0: guest talks about his amazing career as a fighter pilot and now becoming a commercial airline pilot and the lessons he has learned. How long were you in the Air Force? Uh, A bit over 13 years so yeah
1: very cherished time it was damn hard work and and really you know because in those days I didn't have anywhere near the self-confidence that I do now it was really a challenging time not knowing whether you're going to survive the academy or not, not knowing whether you're going to survive flying training or not. And that was a confidence thing more than anything else. As I said, as an instructor, what I found later, it was the guys with the tenacity to just keep on going and keep on going. You know, that that song that goes along the lines of, I get knocked down, but I get up again. I live by that song. I've had so many things that have happened to me, and it's like, yep, got knocked down again but I'm getting back up. And that is such an important facet of life that you've you've got to carry with you all the time. Doesn't matter how many knocks, you've got to have that ability to get back up again. So yeah, I had 13 and a half years there. And um, so four of those were in the Air Force Academy. I uh, went on to uh, do my flying training and then was delighted to be selected for fighter training. Uh, I went up to Butterworth and flew Mirages in Butterworth for uh, a little over a year. And then 75 squadron that I was operating were directed to redeploy from Butterworth back to Australia. So I was a navigation uh, officer in those days and planned the entire return trip from the navigational point of view to get those aircraft back into Darwin. Operated out of Darwin for about a year and a half and then posted onto um, a fighter combat instructor course. And, and that was probably the culmination of everything I've done in, in defense. That course is singularly the most challenging, the most difficult, the most rewarding of anything that I've ever done uh, in terms of flying training, anything to do with aircraft or otherwise. It's so ultimately satisfying. Uh, and and it proved myself wrong more than any other thing. It proved how wrong I was to, d- to doubt my ability to actually achieve that outcome.
0: So for that kid that's coming into high school that has always dreamed of being a fighter pilot, but he's saying to himself right now, I could never do it. What would you say to him?
1: let me tell you my story follow me walk with me and i will lead you the way there is no reason why you can't do what you want to do if you have the desire to do it
0: so just cling to your dream and keep going
1: yeah a lot of things come from the support that you have with the people around you Steve. no one can work in isolation if you don't have the confidence to ask a question if you don't have the confidence to listen if you don't have the confidence to accept that what someone else is telling you may not be right, but there might still be a lesson there. It's worthwhile listening. It's worthwhile just sitting back and saying, hey, okay, might have a point, even though I don't agree with this guy. But for right now, I'll just do what he says because he knows more than me. And I'll try to emulate what he is telling me and teaching me. And I think this was something that I tried to engender into people at uh, places like um, the commercial company that I was working with that. Uh, If you as a junior pilot can see attributes in the captain, in the first officer, that you simply find traits you would like to emulate, then grab hold of them. Follow the good things. See the things that you see in that person that makes you feel that they are doing a good job and learn from them.
0: The Air Force led you to an amazing career as a commercial pilot. What planes did you start flying and what was the last plane you flew?
1: I was uh, pretty lucky. I had quite a diverse career in in Qantas. Um, I started off flying Boeing 747s. And in that was uh, the classic version, which covered a whole range of different 747s. They had combi aircraft where we had upper deck, there was a cargo aircraft. We had the original 100 series that we had on lease from time to time, which was very antiquated. We had SPs, which had the longest legs of any 747 in those days to go um, uh, non-stop from Sydney to LA on on certain routes. And we had the the classic 200 and 300 series. So a wide range of those, which was was quite good to be able to fly those those different aircraft, even though it's basically the same designator. And then from there, as, as Qantas grew, it eventually downsized those 747 classic aircraft. And as a consequence, my opportunity to continue flying that aircraft became redundant. And so I was then posted, for one of a better term, onto flying Boeing 767s, which is a smaller two-engine aircraft and predominantly used for domestic flying with some international work as well. The big difference is that the 747 is, is designed, this is a really interesting concept, the 747 was designed as a three-man crew. So the captain is actually the orchestra conductor who's sitting there saying to the first officer, okay, you fly the aircraft and I'll look after the management. Engineer, you make sure everything works and let me know if something's broken. And I'll just sit here and listen to what you guys are telling me. And then if I have a problem, I'll ask the engineer to tell me what checklist I need to call for. If we're not going in the right direction, I'll ask the EFO, hey, are you going in the right direction or not? So it was designed purposely to be a, a multi-people environment. But a 767 takes one person out of that cockpit. So all of a sudden, the whole management style that I've been trained in for 10 plus years has now gone out the window. Now we've all of a sudden, we don't have the luxury of pilot flying, pilot not flying, and manager. We've just got two people there that have to do all the jobs that three people would normally do. So that took a lot of learning to understand this different methodology. Now, over time, with better sophistication, that works much better because we have very sophisticated computers that sit in between those two pilots doing those jobs to provide a lot more information to be able to make better decisions when things don't work as well as they should. 767s, um, uh, for, I think I flew those for three years, and then finally, I became digital and learned what computer's about and flew Airbus A330s. And that aircraft was one of the first pure fly-by-wire aircraft. And so as you might be familiar from watching air crash investigators and other things where you've got a cockpit full of circuit breakers and bits and pieces, airbuses don't have circuit breakers. Well, not upstairs in the cockpit anyway. They're all computer reset button. So anytime you have a problem with the aircraft, you find which computer needs to get a kick in the bum and start running again. You just hit the reset button to get that going. And that all comes down to, again, another significant understanding of methodology with the aircraft to go from something that's analog, something that had three people on board to work through issues, to something that is now totally digital, very computer orientated, and requires a different way of understanding how the aircraft should operate.
0: I can't believe you said you started flying with 747s. Most people would say they started with otters or beavers and you started with 747s. You know, you've had lots of conversations with my wife over the years. She suffers from anxiety and she is terrified of flying. And she said, I'll fly in any plane that you're flying. You told a story once when you were coming into Sydney and it was a really win- windy day. And I believe you guys were getting rerouted to Melbourne. Was that right? Uh, the Brisbane, actually. Yeah.
1: We uh the wind was getting up. We we had very little notification about this um, meteorological event. So we took off from Auckland and to fly to Sydney. We have a fairly tight fuel policy. So if there's no significant weather, then you don't put extra fuel on, put enough of you know half an hour's fly and plan the aircraft, no big deal. But if the weather's clear, if there's no thunderstorms around, no adverse conditions, then you don't put a lot of extra fuel on. Some guys do, but Personally, that's just, you know, burning up resources of this world that we don't need to burn up. If you can be minimalistic about that, but safe at the the same time, then I think that's an approach that you should take. So although there was no adverse weather forecast, there was a forecast of turbulence. And there is provision in the flight planning system to say, oh, well, maybe you might want to put a bit of extra gas on for that. So we did put a little bit more on when we took off out of Auckland to manage that contingency. So off we go, and then we start picking up our weathers on the way to Sydney, and it's saying, "Oh, the wind's starting to pick up a bit." And uh, yeah, okay, we've got enough fuel for that; it's no big deal. We can divert any time right now to Brizzy, and and that won't be a problem. So we kept on on going, and we get our clearance to make an approach from 30 plus thousand feet on descent into into Sydney, and and we get halfway down the descent, and. Uh, Sydney approach rings up and says, "Um, oh, you might want to contact your company. So we did, and the company says, the wind is really bad. (laughs) You want to prepare to go to somewhere else because they're closing all the runways there. I said, what are you talking about? Well, it's 45 knots on most runways of crosswind, and if you can battle that, good on you. And so I'm thinking, God, okay, all right, leave it with me. So at that stage, I said to the first officer, look, I need to do a lot of thinking about what's going on with this and I want you to fly the aircraft. So let me do the talking on the radio, you look after just flying the aircraft and I'll think about how we're going to manage this. So we continued on down and and, um, in Sydney, there are two runways that are the primary runways and one cross runway. Now the direction of this wind was um, something like, um, it was between 300 and 330 at 45 to 60 knots um, uh, straight across the airfield. So I start having some conversations with air traffic and saying, you know, what's the wind like? Oh, well, it's this here and, and, and this at the other end. And so, you know, it, it looks like it's out of limits. And I said, uh, well, what about the, the other parallel runway? And he said, well, that one's a pure 45 knots of crosswind. So that's a bit of a problem. All right, how's the main primary runway now? Well, it's actually black. It's closed at the moment. Why? because the spare containers that are sitting at the end of the runway are now just being blown across the runway. So if you land there, it's gonna be a problem for you dodging containers as you slow down on the runway. So I've got problem with wind. I'm running short of gas. I've got the FO flying it. What else can I do? So I need to talk to the passengers. So I get on the blower and I say, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain. We don't have a problem, but we had to consider that we might have to go to Brisbane. So I explained the wind conditions to them. I said, look, the way the wind is going, there will be patches whereby we're still within the flight limits of the aircraft. Now, it'll be the maximum limits, but that's what it's designed to do. Take it up front right now without any question. I am not going to endanger the aircraft. I'm not going to endanger you. If I am not comfortable with this, we're going to Brisbane, but I'll give it my best shot and we'll go and see what Sydney looks like, and see whether a landing is appropriate or not. But there will be no risk. So we continue down onto finals, um, and the wind was pretty gusty and rough. And I said to the first officer who was flying it, at 2,000 feet, I'm going to take the aircraft from you, and I will land the aircraft. So we all got that squared away, sorted our checklist, and, and all that sort of thing. And the most important thing for me, Steve, was, in that instance, to be relaxed. I didn't want to be sweating for the last half hour of doing that descent, worrying about flying the aircraft, worrying if I've got any other contingencies on board, worrying about the fuel at the same time as flying it, knowing that there are issues with containers blowing across the runway, with where we're going to park, with all the other things, I needed to be relaxed. This is going to be a challenging landing and I didn't want to cock it up. So I gave it to my subordinate. You flyers are a plane, just as well as me, but I had the limits to be able to go to the limits of the aircraft, and you don't, so you take it from now, and I'll be just ho-hum, fat-dumb-and-happy here, twiddling my thumbs until it gets the time to run the show. So we did that, and at 2,000 feet, I took control of the aircraft, and we flew it down onto the finals, and we had a horrendous amount of crosswind. Um, the aircraft, I, I couldn't tell you the numbers, but it would have been 30-plus degrees of offset on the runway before touchdown, but with all of these things, it comes back to the same thing. If you do it by the numbers, do it the way you're taught, do it accurately and correctly, it's like, okay, walk in the park. So I had no choice then. We did follow the numbers absolutely precisely. I did fly the flare exactly as it should have been done. And to do that is actually a back the front technique whereby you um, you don't take the uh, change of direction, the yaw out of the aircraft until after you've initiated the flare. If you do it the other way around, the aircraft will drift off the runway. So it's really important that you do this in exactly the right sequence at the right altitude and do it at the right place. So believe it or not, for this horrendous landing that I was expecting, I did almost a greaser landing. <laughs> so the fact that I sat down and decided I had to be relaxed, I decided I had to do it absolutely by the numbers. I had to do it in a way that, you know, it should be done every single time, but I couldn't make a cock on this one. So got it on the ground. It was a reasonably smooth landing. And the cabin crew came up to me later and said, you should have heard the applause in the back of the aircraft. But said, so for what? I just landed. It. It's like no big deal. And, and that's what it was. It was no big deal. It was just done by the numbers and done how it should have been done. So we taxied off and um, everyone, I you know, got a lot of thanks and, and thanks for not diverting and thanks for doing this. And, and it's like, but that's what you're trained to do. And you should be able to do everything to the limits of what you're trained to do.
0: I'm laughing because you always told my wife, Helen, that there's no stress when you're flying the aircraft. (laughs) You said the most stressful part of your day was driving to the airport. But once you got on that bird, you just totally relaxed.
1: Absolutely, Steve. And and that's relaxing is all about a state of mind. And it's how you put yourself there. You can suffer. Everyone that suffers stress, there's only one person that generates that. And that's you, the individual. You're the only person that is susceptible to it. If you can isolate the things that you perceive as be those stress generators and put them aside or address them later or accept that you don't have control over them, so there's no point taking issue with them, put them down and go and do what you have control over. And in this case, I wanted to relax myself to the greatest deal that I possibly could and execute a good landing. And that's all I could do.
0: Is that a learned ability?
1: I think it's twofold. I said to you before that you should try to emulate people that you see doing things well. There was some, I'll give you a couple of quick instances. There was one guy who unfortunately was killed in a F-18 F-18 mid-air accident sometime after my journey through life with this guy. But he was a fighter combat instructor and I held in high esteem. He could stand up and lecture on a fighter technique for two hours without making a single um, or a single ah in this conversation. And it was just fluid, cohesive, chronological, sensible, logical, and all those things that you want to hear. Hey, I understand what this guy's on about. It's like, I need to be able to do that. I need to be able to learn to communicate when I'm briefing people without those hesitations, with the confidence that I have to be able to do that. Knowing that if I can impart that, piece of knowledge in a way that someone feels confident about it, they will take it on board. So he was a real key person in my learning on how to communicate effectively with people in a way that gives presence and skill in what I'm trying to teach them. So that was one. Another one was an instructor at Qantas called Peter Appleton. And I hold him as, as one of the two or three highly skilled instructors that I've ever come across in my entire flying career. And this guy, one of the first times that I flew to Los Angeles as a second officer, and he was a captain on the aircraft then. And I came out of the bunk at you know whatever stupid o'clock it was that we haven't had any sleep and everyone's really tired. And he says, "I hope you had a good break and glad to see you back on board. Um, it's foggy in LA. What are your thoughts?" I'm <laughs> okay. "What do you mean? What are my thoughts? I'm the second officer here. You're asking me what do I think?" For the first time, the first time ever when I was in Qantas did a captain turn around and say he genuinely wanted my opinion. He genuinely wanted to know what I thought were a, a circumstances that I could consider, that I could provide valid and viable input to allow him to make a decision with the best knowledge available. And I thought I was just flawed as a second officer uses a piece of dirt. You know, you carry the bags, you look after the allowances and that's it. And for this guy to ask me a technical question, mind you, it was a big frustration moving from defence into commercial flying because people in commercial flying who haven't had a defence background do not understand the rigour of the training that defence offers, the skills that are available there. I got criticised for being a fighter pilot aircraft because I wouldn't know how to communicate. And the thing with communication, is that you have to do it regardless of using your voice. In a commercial aircraft, you're sitting there one arm length away and you can talk and touch and feel and pass and do things with someone else. In a fighter jet, you can't do that. And sometimes in a fighter jet, you don't even have the radios to do that, yet you've got to communicate. So to be able to learn how to communicate by using wing waggles or maneuvers or other methodologies to still undertake that task without even being in the same cockpit, if you don't understand that, you have not experienced it. And that was one of the real downers in going into this commercial environment is that there is a poor understanding of other people's backgrounds. It depends on the person's circumstances. If you had a spoon-fed upbringing through Qantas and, and had your training paid for, had a dream run, that might be the, the best financial outcome from you. But Sunshine, you don't have a story. You can't tell me when you slept under the wing of a bug smasher out in the Northern Territory when there was a thunderstorm on and nowhere to go. You can't tell me about the near misses in in flying fighters or the number of aircraft that you've engaged in. It's just like you haven't got something in your background to be able to fall back on. And so when I had this captain turn around and say, what's your opinion about this? Here's the fog, here's the weathers in these other places. What do you think about it? It was like, wow this guy's actually expecting me to partake with knowledge that I might be able to give him something. They were really important lessons to me, Steve, to be able to take that and build my method of of operating in this flying regime in a way that got the most out of all of my subordinates or the people that I was working with.
0: And would you say that your mental health was protected by, I don't want to say confidence, but that's kind of what I want to say is You had good mentorship, which gave you confidence, which helped protect your mental health. Would you say that might be true or is there something else?
1: It is true, but it's the ability and the capacity to look back and say, where have I been and where am I now? Everyone has bad days. Everyone has incidents and regrets and things that they do wrong. And the traits of most people are to elevate those bad outcomes, to focus on the things that went wrong that shouldn't have gone wrong. To focus on the decisions that were made in haste or with poor guidance or just plain wrong. And we tend to fester on those. And we find that they are things that are easy for us to recall, easy for us to feel bad about ourselves because we made a cock up, because we did something wrong. To develop your own life philosophies is really important. Let me give you two examples. When I started command training, I had three primary premises to get through command training. First was, second prize is still pretty good. So to be a first officer on a commercial airline, well, okay, I can't really complain about that. I'm doing okay, I'll get paid a fair bit of brass. It's a money for jam job once you get your handle on it. Yeah, you get bloody tired, but second prize is still not too bad. The next premise was, you can't know everything. There's always going to be someone in your training environment, someone that you know, someone that has greater skills in a particular area than you do. Oftentimes, those people like to, for one of two reasons, either put you down and show you how much you don't know, or to educate you and say, hey, I've got some knowledge here. You can take it if you like, but throw it away if you don't, but it should be received. And to go into an environment, particularly a training environment, from flying training point of view, you'll always have guys who are taking either of those positions but with greater knowledge in a particular area than you have. And so it's the willingness to say, yep, okay, I don't know as much as perhaps I should do or I don't know as much as he does or I don't know as much as I could do, but I don't take offence from that lack of knowledge. I take it as a learning experience to say, okay, I might need to do some more homework here because I don't know enough stuff about this. Or he might just have a pure passion of, I love this shit, and I'm going to tell you all about it. And if you want to be stupid and not listen to me, that's your fault, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And the final one is that family is important. It's, again, a life philosophy. You can't know everything, but you don't go there and be adversarial about it. Respects because I could see people that I considered to be inferior pilots now having command, I knew that I would get through. I knew I could do the job. I knew I could pass the course. That, in my mind, was a given. But I only learned that after seeing where other people had gone through, seeing that they had progressed, whether it was after repetition or directly through, didn't matter, but they got past. And I felt then, now I'm starting to build that confidence and that resilience that you're talking about because I can see others, not really much different to me, and they've passed. So when I say... Family is important. It's not just that you need to keep interacting with your family. You need to not be so focused on what you're trying to get out the other end that everything else goes awry. When I started command training, there were four guys that I spoke with that by the time they did the fourth simulator were on sleeping tablets because they could not sleep enough. One of the captains told me prior to starting, he said, if you're not studying till midnight every night of this course, you'll never get through. And I said, if I'm not in bed by 10 o'clock, I'll be too tired to get through. So I'm not paying attention to anything you're telling me because it's just not going to work. I need to be alert. I need to be awake. I need to be engaged with the family. I only missed one kid event with all the soccer games that I went to to support my kids. With the other things that went on, I made sure that I stepped away from that training for just enough time to give me mental relaxation and press on with that. So having... This series of personal beliefs in personal ways to take myself through meant that I didn't go off the rails. Yeah, sure. Had a few hiccups along the way, but who doesn't? Do I care? Not really. Did I pass? Here I am. And the more that you go through those experiences, the more that you learn about how vulnerable yet how strong you are at the same time, the more confidence you have in your own self.
0: What's interesting about this podcast is it was supposed to be about firefighting when I started. I called friends and, you know, someone might say, why does he have a pilot on there? Well, first of all, I've known you for 25 years. But second of all, as I've done 30 of these podcasts now and people have listened all over the world, I've had recovering drug addicts. I've had police officers. I've had firefighters. I've had people that have lived on the streets. But regardless of what level in life they are and regardless of what they've done for a living, this whole thing has kind of turned into leadership. And you've been one of the most even killed people I've ever met in my life and I've considered you a good friend. We probably live as far away as you can be. We still manage to stay in touch and so have our kids which is pretty cool. I consider you an amazing leader. And even what you just said in the last hour is so beneficial for someone to listen to that doesn't know what they want to do in their life. And maybe they're afraid to look at becoming a pilot because they're not an academic. And maybe they're afraid of entering the Air Force or Navy because they don't think they can do it. I think the words that you just spoke are so inspiring for someone who might end up doing something else than what they really love. So I think you know, when you are mentoring people and inspiring people, it's really important in this world. This whole thing that's happened is about leadership. And I consider you one of the most even killed leaders. And when it comes to mental health, you seem to have a good grasp on it. But when you just told your story there, you can almost see how you got there looking back through your eyes, you built it through your life. It's very interesting, they might not be able to end up a commercial pilot, but they may end up doing something they really love if they just keep trying. And I think that's your whole story right there.
1: You've summed it up very well, Steve. I had probably, there would have been at least half a dozen guys in my career at Qantas that said, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but I didn't have the confidence to go and do it. And I said, well, you'll enjoy your life here, but you won't enjoy the passion because you've never had the opportunity to experience that. And without that passion, you can't reach the culmination of what your potential is. Uh, and, and that's the difference between people who I think really become strong leaders, are uh, those with empathy, with understanding of their subordinates, but have the passion to not just get there themselves, but drag everyone around them on that same journey. And, and that's where I'm trying to go right now is to show people there are ways to do things that encourages them to have belief in themselves and, and move forward in life without feeling the downside of mistakes and errors and disappointments that what a lot of life brings toward you've got to step past that and say yep been knocked over time to get up again and on we go
0: well thank you for mentoring all those pilots and i've been on Qantas, and so many people have flown it's an airline that's above so many and it's because they go out and recruit people like yourself and they build a brand they, they believe in the people that they have that work for them and clearly you believe in passing it down, which I'm sure so many people have done through that company. And you spoke about someone who did it for you and you've paid it forward. We'll afford to seeing you over in Canada or you know what, maybe we'll see you in Australia.
1: However we do it, we'll just keep on doing it. Great to chat
0: again. That ends another edition of Undercover Mental Health. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Thank you.